the sun or known anything, this has more rest than any man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not go, uh, do not all go to the same place. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it knows that he is man. And he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what, a, uh, what is good for man in life, all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man, who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We just pray that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand what the Holy Spirit would love to say to us today. We ask in your name, amen. We're picking it up today in... Uh, I'm on? We got a couple right here. I apologize for this. Thank you very much. Let us continue. I feel like I've ended before I've even started. All right. I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. This is one of the darker chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes. Some commentators have called it the most <laughs> uh, depressing chapter in the Bible. Uh, so I'm very glad that you're here today. But actually, as we get into it, um, I feel that it's full of instruction, and it is good for us. In the first six verses, basically, Solomon has been asking about life under the sun. In particular, someone that is wealthy, someone that has acquired great goods, and that he has found no satisfaction in life. And so... Because he has found no satisfaction, he basically makes a couple illustrations. That it would be just as good to be a stillborn child than a man who has acquired great wealth and many things, but has not found any satisfaction in his life. And uh, he goes on to now talk about a second type of worker, and it would be what we would call in our parlance the middle class a person that is a laborer working from check to check 
And he says in verse 7, all the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This is also vanity and grasping of the wind. He opens this chapter talking about the rich. Now he's talking about someone that is working very hard for their keep. He tells us in verse 7 that it is basically all labor is to feed his appetites. And appetites are never ending. In verse 7, the preacher happens when we feed we get hungry all over again is this going in and out sick of this
than simply to satisfy greater appetites. They are there for us to be able to, thank you. They are there for us so that we might be able to do things that are necessary for our family and for our futures. And we all understand that. There is a certain place where it is healthy appetites, and there are different places in life where it's unhealthy appetites. In verse 8, he says, well, what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Now, verse 8 asks two questions of a person who is a laborer, who is working. And both of these questions are really answered by none. If all you do in your work is to satisfy your appetite, he is saying that the wise man has no advantage over the fool, nor does the poor man have any advantage trying to better his situation and learning to get along, uh, than learning to get along with the rich. Because Solomon is not belittling education or self-improvement. He's only saying a basic principle that as Christians we all know and understand. And that is that things and money in and of themselves cannot make life richer or better. We must have something greater than these to live for. In other words, it is entirely possible to make the goal of your life riches and things and to realize that when you acquire them all, that there is a deep hole in your life. But he is saying, as you acquire these things, make sure that you have a higher purpose to use that which God has blessed us with. Verse 9 says, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This is also vanity and grasping for the wind. The New Living Translation sheds a little light on this verse. It says, enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless like chasing the wind. In other words, the old saying back in Saskatchewan and probably everywhere else in the world is, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. It's better to have something in your hands than to desire what you don't have. What is Solomon talking about here, if you drill into it a little deeper? He's talking about contentment. He's talking about enjoying what you have rather than being stressed out about what you don't have. The dictionary defines contentment as the state of being mentally or emotionally satisfied with things as they are. Now, taken in context, that is perfectly fine unless you would find yourself in a pond filled with alligators and your objective was to drain the swamp. Contentment would not be a good idea there. But what he is talking about is the normal rhythms of life. He's not talking about the extraordinary emergencies that demand common sense, action, and things that we need to do because the circumstances demand it. We're talking about the normal rhythms of life and being 
contented in them. And the Bible has a great deal to say about contentment, about being satisfied with what we have, about who we are and where we are going. Jesus said in Matthew 6.25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. We could just stop there and talk about that for the rest of our lives. Jesus said, do not worry about your life. And now you're worried that Jesus said that. <laughs> what you will eat or drink or about your body. Where do most North Americans spend all of their time and all of their worry? In what we will eat, what we'll drink, and what does our body look like? As a matter of fact, the cosmetic industry, the physical fitness industry, it's a billion, billion, billion dollar business. And if you watch any commercials, everything on the commercials is about how to look more beautiful or to be more happy. Now, I don't really see a lot of commercials using a lot of women who are whatever. <laughs> or men. I've seen a lot of ugly guys on TV, Kathy. Now, is there anything wrong with looking beautiful? I don't think so. But thank you. Someone has discernment out there. But is not life more than these things? It's not there's anything wrong with those things. Jesus just says, is not life more, you know, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? In essence, Jesus is saying there has to be a certain level of contentment in our lives. Moreover, he has said there and given us a direct command not to worry about the things of the world. He goes on in verses 32 and 33 of Matthew 6. He said, for the pagans... The world runs uh, run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. We can look at these words from Jesus, and we can certainly deduce that a lack of contentment is sin. And it puts us in the same category as people who don't know the Lord. The Apostle Paul was a man who suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. And he was a man who went without the comforts of life more than most people could ever imagine. But he knew the secret of contentment and he wrote about it to the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. He said, I know what it is to be in need. I'm looking back at my life and I'm wondering, can I make that statement? 
I know what it is to be in need. I certainly know what it is to be in want because I want a lot of things. I'm not sure that I have ever gotten to a place in my life where I could say, I know what it is to be in need, except spiritually, I know what it is to be in need of the grace of God and, and a fullness and desire for God. I know I need that and I hunger for that. But I think that Paul is talking about material things here. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've been in both camps. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I'm going to uh, write a book, The Secret of Being Content, and I'm going to start a TV show. I'm going to wear white shoes and a white belt. No, I won't be on the golf course. And for $50, I'll tell you. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. What an incredibly powerful statement. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The writer to the Hebrews adds, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Ephesians 5.3 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as fitting for saints. Colossians 3, 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, if you look at these lists of sins, they're pretty heavy duty. We're talking about sexual sin, fornication. We're talking about uncleanness, evil desires, and covetousness is in that list. Ever notice that covetousness is in that list? You'd think, beware of murder. That's bad. Beware of stealing. That's bad. Covetousness is right up there. When we drill a little deeper, we see that the root of covetousness, according to Colossians 3, 5, is it's idolatry and that's simply that we make gods of things and people that are not worthy of our worship yet people continue to seek after more things of the world never content with things in life the latest global statistics show that if one has a roof over his head and a meal on his table he is richer than 93% of the world's population. If a person wears a pair of shoes, one pair of shoes, he is richer than 75% of the people in the world. As of July 3rd, 2018, Canadian statistics say 
that every Canadian carries an average of $22,800 of debt each. Every Canadian. And still, we are discontented. We need more credit cards. We need more credit to find where we can buy more happiness. And perhaps the bait behind the debt and disc is the discontentment of chasing after that elusive thing that will bring happiness to our soul. And we know that it won't. I, I think when I read the Gospels of, the Lord, uh, of our Lord, I often think that the Lord met people right at the, right at the place where they were chasing happiness. Uh, you know, I've said this before, the woman at the Samaritan well, he's having a conversation, and finally Jesus looks and says, go call your husband. Uh, I don't have one. You're right, sweetie. And the five guys before that, you weren't married to them either. I perceive you're a prophet. And Jesus said, you know what? You're looking for happiness in a wrong relationship. It's a relationship with me. He always dealt with people at that place. To worry means not to trust God. And there's a difference between worry and concern. It's a fine line, but there is a difference. Now, what is that line? I would put it this way. As Christians, we are called to do our very best. But after we have done our very best, the only choice that we can make after that is to commit the rest. So we are not told to park our brains at the door. We are not told to abandon logic and common sense. We are instructed in scriptures to be diligent about all of our life. Be it our finances, be our marriage, be our uh, kids, be it our jobs, it doesn't matter. We are to do our very best because Paul tells us that we are not working as unto men, we are working as for the Lord. And therefore, whatever we do, we are to do it with all of our heart as unto the Lord. So we do our best, we commit the rest. Then after we've done that, we seek God's wisdom in prayer through his word, godly counsel, and we make our decisions and we commit it to the Lord. And we're open to his leading to change anything that he wants to change, to say we felt like this was right, but it, it appears that God is leading this way. Now I'm aware that we've taken a little detour from contentment on the subject of worry, but worry and contentment or discontentment they go together like a glove and a hand. And the Bible clearly teaches that Christians are not to worry. Okay, well, if we're not to worry, and I'm worried, and I'm worried that you're talking to me about this, what am I supposed to do? The Bible makes it clear. The Bible says, do not be anxious, or do not worry about anything. Boy, oh boy, am I busted. Do not be anxious about anything. 
But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In Scripture, the Bible tells us that we should bring all of our worries, all of our needs, all of our concerns to God and pray about them rather than just worry about them. Now, you all know that scripture, don't you? And if you don't, you should underline it in your Bible and, and memorize it. But the question is, is do we discipline our minds to actually do it? Because in the heat of worry and anxiety, it's very difficult to step back and say, okay, I have to bring this to the Lord and I have to lay it at his feet and I have to continue to do that. You see, there's, there's a difference, folks, about knowing about something in the Bible and actually taking hold of the promise and incorporating it into your life until when that thing comes knocking at your door, you keep answering it with Philippians 4, 6. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, cast all your worries on him, all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Or as the King James, cast all your cares on him for he careth for you. God doesn't want us to carry around the weight of our problems and burdens. In this verse, God is telling us to give to him these things. And why does God want to take care of these problems? Because he cares for us. Do you know what the biggest lie that Satan has always used from the beginning of Scripture? There's not a lot of new tools in his toolbox. But the original one is, has God really said? It was right there in the garden, and it's never changed. And he always tells us in the midst of our anxiety and, the, uh, and uh, worry, he basically says, does God really say that? Does God really care about you? If he cared about you, you would not be going through the things that you're going through. Lie. It's a lie. It's always been a lie. It always will be a lie. God cares for you. He cares so deeply for us that while we, had, we didn't want anything to do with him, he sent his son to take on flesh and to die a horrendous death and shed his blood so that we might be forgiven and that not only forgiven, we might be in his family and that he might bestow upon us his riches and his love and his care. God is concerned about everything that happens to us. And there is no worry that is too big or too small for his attention. And when we give God our problems, he also gave us a promise of peace. And that peace transcends all understanding because it's a supernatural peace. Well, what is the key? The key is to really know God and to enjoy God. 
and to have a sense of how much God loves you. It's always interesting to me that we are encouraging each other and Christians to serve the Lord. And I often wonder, how is it that we can serve somebody that we've never taken the time to really get to know? It's almost like asking a soldier to volunteer to go to the front and the soldier doesn't have any idea about the cause. I don't even think Christianity can make a lot of sense. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. I don't think it can make a lot of sense to a person until you actually decide to get to know him. And the only way that I have really discerned to know the Lord is through his word, through prayer, through the fellowship of the saints. And one of the great joys is by proclaiming him and sharing him. And I always see these four things as basically the four corner posts really of holding up the table. In verses 10 to 12, he asks these questions. He says, whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man. And he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. It's an interesting verse. I'd like to read it to you in the ESV, the English Standard Version. It says this, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Solomon looks at a third person now, who is looking back and wishing for a different outcome. And Solomon is saying, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it's known what man is. In other words, what has been done has been done, and looking back and wishing that it would be different, it's already got a title in your mind, it's already been put away in a file, and it cannot be undone. We could give the event, that person, a name, and how in the past that thing affected us, but remembering it, thinking about it, is not going to change the present or the future. Pastor Warren Worsby says the preacher was not finished. He knew that life was also a dead-end street for a third kind of person. The person who required answers to all of life's questions. Solomon was not condemning honest inquiry because Ecclesiastes is the record of his own investigation into the meaning of life. Rather, Solomon was saying there are some questions about life that nobody can answer. But our ignorance must not be used as an excuse for skepticism or unbelief. Instead, our ignorance should encourage us to have faith in God. After all, we don't live on explanations, we live on promises. Solomon looks at this and he can think about everything that went before him. He can think about the present. He can even think about the future and he is wondering why in the world does life make any sense if God knows about everything already. I was asking Brad 
in the office this week about whether I should get into this whole predestination thing. He says, it doesn't really matter. It's all been predestined. <laughs> and I'm not going to get into it. What I am going to say is simply this, is that God knows the past, the present, and the beginning, and we would be wise to put our trust in him. Solomon is telling us that if you want to be frustrated, you can argue with God. But he is the potter. We are the clay. And he doesn't mind if you and I argue with him. It doesn't hurt his feelings, but it won't change his mind, and our mind will be blown. Just ask Job. Verse 12 tells us, for who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Indeed, who does know what is good for a man in life? God does. I, my job is to say, God does. God knows what's good for a man in life doesn't he? It might be hidden to you. It might be mysterious to you. It might even be uh, displeasing to you. I've, there's a lot of things that I've gone through in life where it has been displeasing to moi. If I were God, this would not be going on in my life. Have you had that experience? Everyone say, all the rest are liars and we will deal with you accordingly. Who can tell a man what will happen under the sun? God can. He tells us very plainly what's going to happen after this life under the sun is done. He gives us enough information to make decisions on the big questions. He tells us the soul that repents shall have life with me everlasting in the joy of the presence of God forever. And the life that rejects me shall have his own reward separated from me in hell for all of eternity. We know that very plainly from the scriptures. This is why we proclaim to each and every person the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news. God has demonstrated his love and by sending his son and we we enjoin you, we I don't want to say beg, but we uh, entreat you, come to Jesus and receive his love today. We know that he has great purposes for those who love him and serve him. We know that every life, no matter whether it is lived within the shadow of what the world considers important or worth celebrating, has great significance because it is God who gave you that life. 
It is God who called you to that place in Kelowna. It is God that gave you that place to work. It is your responsibility to let your light shine. And it is a very important thing that God has got you there. Every life is equally important to God, not just the ones that we see in the evangelical spotlights. And life is full of questions and difficulties. But God is dependable, but he's never predictable. So let's consider today what the preacher has told us. Worship team, you can join me up here. If a person's appetite cannot be satisfied with much or little, that so-called wisdom is foolishness. And it will lead to a discontentment in life with worry. Therefore, what is the thing that we are required to do? Do your very best. Seek God with all of your heart. Use your brains. Use your strength. Use all of your faculties, and after you have done your very best, commit the rest. How? To think on the things that God has asked us to think on. And secondly, to thrust, to cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And looking back and lamenting the past is a good way to get stuck in the past. It's good to learn from the past, but not to dwell in it. We don't have all the answers, and everybody, anyone that says we have all the answers is not telling the truth. But we have most of what is required to know the way in which we should walk, which is to fear God and to trust God. The book of wisdom, Proverbs, says this. And with this, I'll close. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else, because out of it flow the issues of life. Guard your hearts carefully. Ask yourself today, the thoughts and the feelings and the attitudes and the actions which are going through your heart and mind, are they being brought to the place of saying, Lord, every worry I bring before you today. I'm guarding my heart. I'm refusing to dwell on what has happened. I'm refusing to focus on people that have hurt me. I'm refusing to belabor the weaknesses of truth, or what some people have said. I'm giving up bitterness. I'm taking a hold of humility. I realize that God does oppose the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Are you ready to take a step of faith forward this morning? The Lord will meet you. He's so faithful to do that because he cares for you. Let's stand just before we sing, let's just pray together. Lord, thank you today for your word.
I pray for the simplicity of these promises to encourage each and every heart. Lord, I want to specifically pray for those who are worried. May, Lord, uh, just a beautiful and wonderful prayer be emitted from our hearts of, Lord, bringing every promise that you have made to us to mind and to basically bring, Lord God, every anxious thought before you this morning. Here it is, Lord. You know why I'm worried. You know, Lord, what I fear. And I lay it, Lord, at your faithful throne. I ask you, Lord, to reinforce in me today the simple promise that I can cast my cares upon you because you care for me. Help me, Lord, not to be discouraged or listen to the lies, but, Lord, to know that even in the midst of trials, tribulations, sickness, God cares for me. And so we look forward, Lord, this morning to walking in faith. We know that you know all things. We don't, but you do. And I pray for each and every person this morning that they would just, by faith right now, put all of their trust, all of their heart into, Lord, your care. May you encourage them in this very moment. May the Spirit of the Lord come upon you. May the Holy Spirit minister to you. Grace. In Jesus' name, amen.